It's it's from all the nuclear fallout from all the wars. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. That's what, I mean, it just obviously. <laughs> Welcome to episode 32 of the Movie Bite Podcast. This is a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, and more. Today is Monday, February the 25th, 2013. I'm your host, TJ, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Darnell. Hey, everybody. Hey, Joe. It's the middle of the day. It is. This is a first. It's weird. Well, no, haven't we done it in the middle of the day before? No. No? We've always done it at night. Okay. All right. When we should be at the movies. Okay, it seems like we've done middle of the day before, but that was probably before we started doing live. So how how are you feeling, man? Um, not half as miserable as I did yesterday and the day before that. So Good. yeah, I'm I'm glad to be back at the office. Really sore, Ugh, man. Being Didn't, sick it wears you out. Have you been coughing a lot or? No, and you don't know want you don't really want to know. Okay, all right. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> So hey, we have uh, we have somebody in the chat room. I don't believe we've seen in the chat room before. Chad Hopkins. Uh, he's he's uh, chatting with us right now in the chat room. So uh, that's good. Hey, uh, before we get started, I just wanted to mention my news. Uh, you, while you were sick, Joe, while you were off being sick and and whatever dying. it is that you do, yeah. dying or, or whatever, uh, my wife and I welcomed uh, Kaylee into our family, our fourth little baby. Yeah, congratulations, man. Thank you. I'm um, we're very excited. So she, she I don't know what it is. She doesn't do much yet. <laughs> shoot. <laughs> <laughs> for for a Draper, that's uh that's not saying much. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Wait, what what was, was I just insulted? <laughs> yeah, so so the uh kid and mom they're back home now. Oh yeah. Well, um this is a growing trend, so I don't think it's weird to say this. Uh we we had our baby at home. So ah, it, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a midwife. We we love her dearly. Uh, I mean, and we're you know we have a, a backup uh, doctor that we visit uh, during uh, during the pregnancy, and it, we're there ready to go if anything goes wrong. But we really like having babies at home. So, and that's that's about all I'll say about that, unless we get weird, strange, you know, commentary and things. So we don't want to freak too many people out. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'm with you there. I understand. Yeah, our second kid we had at home too. Okay, well there you go. So you understand. It's it's a much better and nicer experience. Uh, everything's mm-hmm. quiet and nice, and you've got the midwife who's just dedicated right there to delivering your baby. That's hey, right. I am so out of kilter here doing this during the day on a Monday that uh, I left. My, I did not silence my phone. I don't know if you heard that or not. So it's silent now. It'll be quiet. Oh, okay. So that's uh, let, let's dive into some news that we didn't get to talk about last week. Yes, let's talk let's. about John Williams. Um, well, John, John, you want to talk about Star Wars? Well, of John course. Williams. I mean, when you talk about John Williams, you have to talk about Star Wars. Uh, John Williams has said that he would like to score Star Wars Seven, and you, you know, I say let the guy do that. I mean, here's the thing: I think a lot of people have figured uh, that it, it's going to be Michael Giacchino um, because that's who Abrams tends to work with uh, in terms of scoring. Uh, in terms of the music for his films, and Abrams, of course, as we know, is now slated to direct Star Wars 7, and so a lot of people have assumed it would be Giacchino, and, and you know, Williams is getting on up there in years, but uh, uh, he Williams has expressed interest, like he wants to come back to the franchise, and I say, you know what, uh, and, and I know people who listen to this podcast will know that I'm not the biggest fan of Williams, like I think, as I've said before, that he does great themes, but doesn't often, to me, capture the overall 
feel of a film correctly. But I think he's done excellent with Star Wars, and I think that it would be a shame to not let him come back. So wait a minute. You think that he his scores are good in of, the, of themselves, or do you like them in his movies in the Star Wars films? Uh, I like. I actually like his score for the most part in the Star Wars films. I have some quibbles here and there. I, I I think sometimes he goes too bombastic, like like too much of the time. Like I think it's appropriate. Like I love the Imperial March, but sometimes I feel like it's like dial it back a little bit, buddy. But but for the most part, I'm really happy with Star Wars, and the guy's a legend, uh, and he's he's the only one who's ever scored the main Star Wars films, let the guy do the work. I mean, he wants to do it, and he's not going to be around much longer. I say let him do it. So, how do you feel about it? Oh, I love him. And I think you're way too tough on him. Especially when it comes to Star Wars, the that you can get away with the epic scale soundtrack, because you're dealing with, you know, essentially the the center of the galaxy and all things that matter to the galaxy. I mean, everything revolves around... The Skywalkers. So if you want to ham it up and you want to slap on a few more brass, you know, and you know, go for it. Do it, John Williams. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's more appropriate in Star Wars for sure. And I will say this, too. Um, I I was quite surprised at how, how well I liked the score for Lincoln, regardless of my other feelings about the film. I thought that the score was actually somewhat understated, which is kind of new for John Williams. And I know people will point me to films, and they have before. Oh, well, you should have listened to this one that he did, uh, you know, that, that's more understated Back in 1973 or whatever. <laughs> right, but I think for the most part, I just tend not to... I, I, tend, I think he tends to miss the little moments. But that... Uh, that's not really what I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to mention, you know, hey, uh, and this this will be in the in the show notes. This link uh, where he has expressed an interest in scoring Star Wars Seven. So, no, I feel you, and you know, I had not considered uh, the possibility that uh, Abrams would use anybody else. Assuming that Williams is not prepared to retire, it doesn't make sense that Giacchino would take over the Star Wars franchise. He's done a lot of great stuff, but he has a very particular flair. And I don't know that he wants to put on the style of Star Wars and emulate, you know, John Williams when John Williams is willing to do it, right? I think that if Michael, you know, were offered the job, he'd probably say, well, why are you giving it to me? There's always John Williams. If he wants to do it, let him have it. Well, I think the thinking was that Williams, uh, and I don't know if he's like actually gone into retirement or anything like that but i think that i mean obviously he just did lincoln or yes he'll but, be very picky at this point but i think right i think the the idea here is that he's starting to Just wind down his career yeah, he should be. and and you know he's one of these guys I, I mean i never i i intend to never retire and so i respect that and and uh but i i think that uh yeah I, like i said if he wants to do it and and chad in the chat room says uh warhorse and lincoln both had great intimate scores uh and they were pleasantly fresh for williams i've i'm not seen warhorse but i seen lincoln and i agree it was it was quite fresh for lincoln for for williams i i quite agree so mm. uh so there you go that's that's the news on that front and uh it's it's kind of late at this point since we're doing the podcast so late that we meant to do last wednesday but uh still felt like we should talk about it yeah so. uh, one other thing to consider here is that by the time they are scoring episode seven john williams might be indisposed of by that time so you know, yeah. That, yeah. that's a good three, four, you know, years away or so. Yeah, we'll have to see. Mm. We'll have to see. So, Joe, how do you feel about aspect ratio? 
what do you know about aspect ratio? I mean, you're you're somewhat of a filmmaker, right? You've made films. Oh yeah, you, uh, you know I'm, a little. You know how frustrating aspect ratio can be. Yes, I I know that every filmmaker wants to come along and manipulate things like 3D and frame rates and yeah, you know. It seems to me though that uh, aspect ratio is not as mission critical to get correct for the theater. So long but, as aspect ratio is very conducive to the experience of home television viewing. Well, at the same time, you, you don't want to go to the theater and, and see an, a movie in 4x3, which is what movies even used to be. Right. And, and there was a movie back in 2011 that tried to do that. With um, It was a story that was supposed to be like a documentary. And it was shot on the moon and it had some sort of horror uh, genre quality to it where these astronauts were finding a supposed creature on the moon that, uh, you know, eventually kills them all. But it was meant to look like it was uh, done with the handheld cameras of the astronauts for the entire film. What really went down on that, you know, Apollo mission type feel. And for the entire film in theaters... It was um, made to look like it was done with shaky, bad feedback, um, you know, re-recorded, re-recorded black and white tapes with sketchy Mm. noise and a 4 by 3 aspect ratio. And Stuart, who's done some stuff with us, he was the one who was reviewing it for Movieology at the time. And he noted just how frustrating it was that no matter how sophisticated your story, that you waste uh, the big screen with a four by three aspect ratio. Oh, totally, completely agreed. Um, well, this article that I I wrote and I posted a video uh, about the aspect ratio of a, a movie called On the Waterfront, which uh, stars Marlon Brando. Apparently, I I haven't seen the film. I I don't know. It's a Criterion Collection film. I don't know if that means that I, I lose my any of my cred uh, as a movie watcher. I, I I'm not familiar with the film. But <laughs> I, I, are you? Oh, I'm a big Marlon Brando fan, but. But have I haven't heard- seen that particular one. Okay, I have. Okay. I know about it. Yes. Okay. So on the waterfront, and but the, the, I was more interested in, in the video because of its uh, the nature of it as a essay on aspect ratio, and it gave me an opportunity to talk about that a little um, personally. Uh, I I would be in favor of getting rid of all aspect ratios except for two point forty to one, which is I think about the widest you can go. I mean, I'm I'm I'm. The wider, the better, as far as I'm concerned. So, Oh, I don't think... I, I think that you can go too far with it. Sure, um, of course you could. Wasn't the original Ben-Hur, like, shot in such a ridiculously wide you know, screen? It was, like, essentially two 16 by 9 screens sitting side by side and in span. It was really wide. <laughs> There's been a few others like that, too. Just all things considered, they'd be rather uh, uncomfortable for f- producing a focal point. In screens on the big yeah, screen I, in theater I, or at I, home. I don't know about Ben Hur, but I know you certainly could go too wide. Um, I think that the two common aspect ratios right now for modern films are one point eighty five to one and two point you know two point thirty nine, two point forty to one. Um, and I, I and it's basically a choice between wide and very extra wide, right? Right. I I like wide. I like pretty wide. I'm okay with one point eight five. I like two point four. But but you know the the real thing that that bugs me uh, you know when as you're as you and I have probably everything that we've ever made has been well frankly actually I don't like to admit it but I've made things that were in four by three back in the day uh, but no yeah but everything that's in widescreen that you and I have made have probably been I'm Jeez. guessing sixteen by nine everything I've ever made has been in sixteen by nine what about you oh I did a lot back in the day with four by three but 
it wasn't by choice. That's for sure. sure. No, me either. Ah, but but certainly SD. I mean, come on. But certainly everything that you've done in HD has probably been sixteen by nine. You've you've not worked in any film aspects. Is that, oh yeah, right. No, I have. I have not and that's, done any. That's film kind aspects. of the standard fare, I think, for indie filmmakers. But anyway, the 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 worst thing ever ever is when I walk into some place. Um, I there there's a place that I like to go eat sometimes called Puckets. Uh, here in Franklin, great burgers by the way. If you're ever in Franklin. You should go to Puckett's Burgers. Um, actually, it's called Puckett's Grocery. Um, and you get a Puckett's Burger. They have TVs in there sometimes playing sports or whatever. And so they're taking a broadcast feed that is 16 by 9, and then they're displaying it on a 16 by 9 TV, but the TV is set up to letterbox it. And so it's crushed so that the aspect is completely messed up. Ooh. <laughs> it's terrible. And I find I see terrible. I see that a lot though. Yeah. Like people don't because people don't understand aspect ratio. And that to them, they don't see that it looks bad. Like they don't see that people look scrunched. It it drives me nuts. So I, I Well, wish, you know why? Is because they've had it that set to that, you know, format since the day they took the T V out of the box and put it up on the ceiling and right. come on. I wish there was. Uh, I wish that the, the aspect ratio as a whole in this business had been better thought through. Like, I wish there was like metadata in the stream that you. I, I hate to take control away from the user, but when you give them control, they do it wrong. So I wish like there was metadata in the stream, in the video, whatever that you couldn't you, overwrite it. Like it would pr- display it in the correct aspect ratio at all times, always on any TV. But I could see it where <laughs> when you switch to a station with a particular film or program on, that it should automatically present it in the correct aspect ratio that'd be nice and yeah. if if the uh the viewer it doesn't make any sense come to think of it i was thinking to myself why would the viewer ever intentionally change the aspect ratio like t- to make it askew I-, I just don't see that happening so no. yeah you're absolutely right it should be in the metadata i just wish it had been better thought through so uh, we need to move on from this dead horse. It's something I care greatly about, and I don't know how many people actually care about it other than me and, and you as filmmakers. So, uh, mm, I, I, I mean, true true cinephiles should care about aspect ratio, but uh, we should move on from that. I, I do want to address something that Chad mentioned. Uh, he thinks that Williams, uh, going back to that for just a second, should compose three generic Star Wars scores now before he's really too old, and the filmmakers can fit the film to the music. Um, I think this is a bad idea. I think the music always comes after your story and the and the music should be scored to the story. I, I understand what you're getting at there, Chad, but I, I don't agree with, with that. Well, along those lines, there are already, you know, six films in the can that if <laughs> right. uh, the, yeah, if the, if the next composer that comes along wants source material, he's, he's got a lot to work with. And I think that it, there's plenty of room, for instance, to explore new themes that are spins on the old ones. For instance, there isn't a distinct Han Solo theme, but if they had a reason to go to his home planet in episode seven, eight, or nine and visit, you know, Han Solo's roots or something on, you know, the Corellian um, planet, then they just have to, you know, find something that seems like a cross between the music on Cloud City and, you know, something to do with the Wookiees and. You've got something that sounds sort of like it could belong to Han Solo. <laughs> you know, it's it couldn't yeah. be that difficult. But yeah. the the real the key feature there is to try and invoke a sense of the of classical music and nostalgia and maintain the the signature. Uh, what would you call details that belong to John Williams? And this yeah. sort of thing has been replicated by many other composers. Um, the soundtrack for Superman Returns, for instance, wasn't 
entirely faithful to John Williams' no, soundtracks. I, well, in fact, but I, would it was say close. That was, I, would, I would say it was largely unfaithful to Williams. I think the only things that felt like Williams were the opening credits. I mean, like, because they directly lifted his music for the theme. And then, then uh, that composer, I can't remember which composer that was, but that he went on to do his own thing. I, I remember noting that it didn't feel anything like Williams after the really? opening theme. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, um, moving on. One one more thing before we get to Back to the Future. I know everybody's eager. I'm eager to talk about Back to the Future, uh, although I have no notes, but, <laughs> but I don't think that'll be a problem. Um, oh, it was John Ottman. That's right. Thank you, Chad. Um, yeah, I, I didn't care too much for his overall score. It was just the theme was great to hear again from John Williams uh, of Superman. But OK, so one more thing before we get to Back to the Future. Uh, Michael Bay is going to bring Megan Fox back to one of his productions. And I just have to mention this just for the, the stupidity. I, I don't care a bit because I don't care about Michael Bay's films anymore, right? Like, he's only made one good film that I know of, The Island. And I... I but but it's like, why why is he... Okay, so so he, he kicked her out of the production of... Um, of of Transformers three for personal differences or reasons or whatever, and now he's bringing her back for the the Ninja Turtles. There's a question of even whether they're going to be teenage oh. mutant. But I, 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 I what I want to know doing the Ninja Turtles yeah, as well. I, I want to know a couple of things. I want to know one oh, who, who who greenlit this production. I want them fired immediately. Two, why is he bringing Megan Fox back who he's already fired once? This is not going to work out well. Uh, and three, and, and here I'm going to read from my article, which again you will find in the show notes. Uh, I don't I haven't mentioned this yet. Moviebite.com/slash/mbpodcast/slash/thirty-two. Once this show goes live, is where you will find the show notes. But uh, so um, I wrote uh, seriously. It's like Michael. It, uh, um, it's Michael Bay and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm trying really hard to give a care at all. Adding Megan Fox to the cast doesn't help in any way. <laughs> and then I also wrote, why would why wouldn't you go for the super hot? you know, model actress rather than somebody with actual talent. <laughs> uh, so, well, as far as, as all things are considered, you know, the reason that we're getting a teenage mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, movie, I mean, come on, <sighs> you know, why they're doing it now is just because there's all these adults that never grew up and they're feeling very nostalgic and <laughs> they feel like watching something from their past made for, you know the adult watching experience. So they're gonna they're gonna you know turn this into a th- movie experience for the sake of the kids that are now in their thirties. I never cared for the Ninja Turtles though. Like I don't mind doing that a little bit with some things, but I never cared for the Ninja Turtles. They were stupid. Well, you're you're one of the few that okay. thought that. Did, did that, you did did you like them? I liked them moderately. I wasn't a huge fan of them, but I had a lot of fa- friends that were <sighs> big fans. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of liked the Nintendo Ninja Turtles game, but that was about that was about it. Yeah. I, and it wasn't because I liked the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. It, it's just, yeah, that's digging too far into the 80s cult culture, people, to stop. Yeah, just Please. stop. Please just stop it. Stop we, it. We have, it. We have S- enough with the G.I. Joes and S-T-O-P, Transformers. new word, I-T. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of any other kids' cartoons or you know programming at all that deserved any attention i mean from the, in the first place yeah in the first place no <laughs> why did why did we even get the gi joes i mean i understand why you want something involving you know uh military combat action but why why even call it gi joes it's not faithful it's just annoying why bother? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I I, I kind of like the GI the first GI Joe, Joe movie for what it is. I mean, it's not it's not Shakespeare or anything. 
I kind of <laughs> like it for what it is, but I don't understand why it's connected to the G.I. Joe universe at all. Why not just have it something completely different? I don't get the, that. Yeah. Well, the only thing I think that deserved any attention was Transformers because it was such an original you know, premise. It had a lot of good uh, content in the the concept. Yeah, and Michael Bay it was blew just, it. Yeah, yeah, just blew it. Yeah, completely. Mm. Who, who right. would, can you picture anybody having done a good job though with that tra- that tra- franchise? Um, yes. But I'm, I'm just trying to imagine who would I want. See, okay, so okay, we'll talk about this I, for two minutes. I, I, hey, um, I'll be I'll be honest with you. You know who I would want? Go, Ro- Robert Zemeckis. Sure. Well, we're going to talk about Robert Zemeckis in a minute and what a travesty his career has been since Back to the Future. But <laughs> Oh, um, come on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was thinking somebody – like like you take a good director and, yeah, you do have to have a good story, but you can also take a good director and make a good story, right? So, yeah, I could see Transformers being better in the right hands. Like uh, not going to happen and I don't think I want it to happen, but like a Christopher Nolan – yeah, I could see that being oh, a lot better. Oh, we're going too far with that, though. I could see that, it being a lot it's better. It's an ensemble story. You, okay, you don't Joss Whedon. Christopher- Joss Whedon. Yeah, but the problem there is is that, uh, you know, uh, well, frankly, I guess I could work, but I don't <laughs> I don't know. Joss- I, 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 I still think Robert's with, with, with very but- rare exceptions, whatever Whedon touches turns to gold. So and maybe that's because he's choosy about what he takes, but I, I think it has more to do with the guy can tell a story. So... Let's talk about Back to the Future, shall we? Yes. And the first thing, before we actually talk about the films, um, I posted a link uh, on Movie Byte. When was this? Let me pull it up. Uh, this was on the 19th, because um, I thought we were going to be talking about it on Wednesday, and turns out you know, you were you were off playing hooky or whatever. Yes. <laughs> Shame on you. Um, Thank but, you. But, so Slash Film had an article, five fan theories that explain events of Back to the Future, and they're mostly talking about why Marty's parents didn't recognize him when he came, you know, when because he had gone back to the 50s and changed time, and now they should remember him. And, you know, you've got this kid who looks increasingly like him or whatever. I I always I always explain that, and, and okay, you got to understand, this is the way fanboys work. We explain things that aren't explained in the film because we think about these things. Um, I always assumed that, well, I mean, you when you remember people, uh, they, they tend to get muddy and muddled in your head. Like, like if you haven't seen them in a couple of years, you will misremember exactly how they look, right? I mean, surely right. you've done this. And, and I've always assumed that, that it's kind of the, the distant memory of Marty. They only knew him for a week, and then he disappeared from their lives. And, and it's not like Marty was born looking like the Marty that went to 1950, right. 1955. And so, uh, yeah, that, that that's how I've always explained it. It's and not they didn't like, have a photo of him either. Right. But but so th- then, of course, there's this whole big theory from one of these guys uh, on this article. And please go read this that's if you're if you like Back to the Future. It's it's fun. It's absolutely fun. I'll, I'll throw this in the chat room for those listening live who might want to take a peek at it. Um, all right. So one of these guys uh, on this Reddit thread that Slash Film linked to, they've, he's got the theory that George McFly did know that it was Marty, but he knew he couldn't tell him because he messed up the timeline. He has this whole big convoluted thing, right? Like, because he fundamentally believes that aliens interfered in his life in order to bring him and Lorraine together. The, the the prom where he knocks out Biff and falls in love with his wife is obviously the most pivotal event in his life. He experience, His experiences with the young Marty are so memorable to him that he even adopts his own son's sayings, like, if you can put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. Anyway, so there's this whole big thing. He's he's got He goes on for many paragraphs about... 
<laughs> about how this all fits together. This is this is absolutely hilarious and fun. Um, yeah, any, anybody who loves Back to the Future should check this out. So I'll interesting. Put, that link will be in the show notes. Um, it, it's, it's I've always gone with the simple explanation, the simple theory. Well, of course they it wouldn't link the, him with the Marty from 1955 because why would they? Yeah. You know, on that note, why does, you know, uh, George McFly say the same things as Sunset, you know, there's also, uh, that also brings up another quandary and that is the tannins because, uh, for three generations of tannins, uh, that, uh, that apparently didn't get along and didn't spend much time with each other. They're all bullies and they all essentially talk the same way. They all use the same yeah, devices. Although and, I, I kind of like the the Tannen guy, the the Marshall from Back to the Future Three. But oh yeah, uh, Marshall. What do you mean Marshall, the, dude? The it wasn't he a U.S. Marshal? No, Tannen was not a Marshal. Biff Tannen. Biff Tannen is the central bully, dude. No, 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 I'm talking about from Back to the Future Three. The tan, the Tannen grandfather guy. Are you listening to me? Are you paying attention to what I'm saying? Yeah, but he wasn't. He wasn't a Marshal. He was the bad guy. He wasn't the Marshal. Why you? Why would you say the Marshall? Oh, I'm. I, I. I feel so embarrassed right now. I don't know why I was doing that. You're right. Um, I was thinking of the Marshall you, guy from. Uh, but you're thinking about the guy who was the Strickland. Strickland. Yes, Strickland. Yeah. Why? I don't know why I did that. <laughs> uh, brain fart. Sorry, sorry, Chad. I didn't mean to do that. I I do know better. It's just my brain. Buford. Was, Buford. Yes. Yes. Buford Tannen. Mad Dog. No one calls me Mad Dog. Um, nice guy. Yes. Okay. Sorry. He needs to brush his teeth. I'm. I'm okay now. I'm okay. Um. Well, in case you didn't know, already know, we'll go ahead and talk about the movie review of Back to the Future. And how are we covering this? Do you want to kind of just dive headlong into the entire trilogy, or are we really trying to address one of the films and just elaborate on the others as necessary? Uh, I, this can I, be this can get confusing, man, because there's a lot going on. I here think we should try films. to. I think we should talk about all three, but I think we should try okay. to do it somewhat chronologically. I don't. I mean, I think when you talk about Back to the Future, it's a time travel movie. You're going to have to skip around a little bit. Mm. So okay, but, but I think I think we should address Back to the Future first, the the first film, because uh, sure. Um, yeah. Now, did you know, TJ? That Robert Zemeckis wrote the script, and he essentially wrote like twelve different drafts of the script in his process of refinement, something like that. I, I and think it I, took him over ten years. Yeah, I think I did know that in the back of my head. I had forgotten it. I was actually reading yeah. earlier today just a lot of the other troubles. It, it's it's a wonder that Back to the Future came to the screen at all. It's a wonder that it did as well as it did because it had a very troubled uh, birth into existence. Um, you, you know, they shot for four weeks. With somebody other than Michael J. Fox playing Marty McFly, it was Eric Stoltz. Um, they Who, who's ever heard of Eric Stoltz nowadays? Right. right? I, mean, I mean, he's he's done a few things, but nobody's really heard of him, right? So, um, and 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 they, you know, they they just had all sorts of trouble like that. Like like it's a wonder that this thing even got to production. Um, the tagline, if I can find it here, um, when it, b- b- when they were promoting it, um, it says. Uh, Back to the Future opened on July 3rd, 1985 on 1,200 screens in North America. That's that's kind of a low number now, but back then I assumed that was a high number. Uh, Zemeckis was concerned the film would flop because Fox had to film a Family Ties special in London and was, an, was unable to promote the film. Bob Gale was also dissatisfied. He was a producer. Was also dissatisfied with Universal Pictures' tagline, which was – now this is the tagline to the film. Are you telling me my mother's got the hots for me? 
<laughs> and you, wow. You, you, with a tagline like that, I wouldn't have gone to see it. Like, who would go see that? Uh, yeah, wow. As Chad also points out, the original time machine was a refrigerator. Uh, they had to harness the radiation from a nuclear test site. No time travel. <laughs> Are you uh, serious? Two, two time travel. Um, <laughs> yeah, sound familiar? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, anyone? <laughs> oh, oh wow. my. Uh, yeah, there, there's all kinds of stories about the troubled birthing into existence that this film experienced. And yet, uh, the first film is by, I think, universally considered the best Back to the Future film. And I know I've been back and forth a little on, on which is better, part one or part two. I, I am right now of the opinion, having rewatched them all just recently, that the first film is the best film. Good for you. Yes. Wise choice. Um, so, so Back to the Future. Um, is, is there anybody in our audience who doesn't know the storyline to Back to the Future? Uh, they're they're all let, aware, I'm sure. Okay, let, let me give let me just give the Cliff Notes version, and then we can we can riff about this. Marty McFly. Well, yeah. Marty McFly is a typical American teenager of the 80s. He's accidentally sent back to 1955 in a plutonium-powered DeLorean time machine invented by slightly mad, slightly mad? By mad scientist, (laughs) is what I'm going to say, by a mad scientist, uh, Emmett Brown. During his often hysterical, always amazing trip back in time, Marty must make certain his teenage parents-to-be meet and fall in love so he can get back to the future. That's that's mm. obviously a very summarized version, and I can't imagine there's anybody uh, in our audience who doesn't know that. But there you right. go. Right, but you know how it goes. If you haven't seen it in a couple of years, maybe you got it mixed up with part two or something like that. Uh, sure. <laughs> All right. Well, so, okay, uh, so a little bit on the making of from you know Wikipedia. Uh, I think this is actually a pretty decent collective source of information for, at the moment for this particular subject. Director Zemeckis and Gale uh, wrote the script after Gale mused upon whether he would have befriended his father if they attended school together. And various uh, film studios rejected the script until the the financial success of Zemeckis' romance, uh, a romancing of the stone had, you know, hit this, you know, hit the screens and had become a big success. Zemeckis approached Spielberg and the project was planned to be financed and released through Universal you know, pictures and Eric Stoltz, sorry, was originally cast as Marty McFly, yada, yada, yada. Um, and the filmmakers decided that he was miscast. So Fox was approached again because he had, he had already been approached beforehand and they managed to work it out with him. And, you know, back in those times, even with part one, uh, Michael J. Fox later reported that he was just beginning to have difficulties with his condition. Mm. Even as early as the right. Back to the Future films, so he wasn't so sure whether or not he was cut out for the film or acting in general, and so it's a, a wonder he ever got in in the first place. Right, and, and you also have to consider too the crazy schedule he kept uh, to to make this film and to keep his commitments to family ties. I, I can't imagine that helped his health at all. He because okay, let me find this this here in the casting section. Um, Da, 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 determined Stoltz had been miscast. Uh, he and Spielberg, uh, Zemeckis and Spielberg realized reshooting the film would add $3 million to the $14 million budget, but they decided to recast. Spielberg explained Zemeckis felt Stoltz was too humorless and gave a terrifically dramatic performance. Gale further explained they felt Stoltz was simply acting out the role, whereas Fox himself had a personality like Marty McFly. Uh, okay, now Fox's schedule was opened up in January... Um, uh, Okay, I, I got to find the right part here. Um, 
essentially, let me boil it down. Essentially, he was working on family ties during the day from, you know, the morning until like six in the evening. And then at six in the evening until 2 a.m., he would be filming Back to the Future. And then if there was any daytime scenes they had to work on, he would do that on Saturday. Uh, And so he was getting like five hours of sleep a night. That's it. You know, I mean, that's Mm. crazy. And and that went on for weeks. Wish I could find the the pertinent uh, thing here, but I I can't uh, find it. So, you know, and as far as casting goes, there's things like Christopher Lloyd um, was not the first choice. John Lithgow was supposed to play it and he became unavailable, which um, that's just kind of a weird thought. John Lithgow is Doc Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I will say it's strange, though, because I can't imagine anybody else in these roles like Crispin Glover it was perfect as George McFly. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely by far remarkable. I mean. The the thing about Crispin is that he he's really an unappreciated actor talent when you consider what he did for that one film. Oh yeah, and uh, I wish that Universal Pictures and you know the director and he had resolved their issues and they had him in the other two films. That, that really irks me. It's one of the the shortcomings of the the trilogy as a whole. But they they got by without him. It's just man, Crispin was. Well, I think they did very <laughs> so well good. without him. I'm I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been a better film. With, you know, the second two films wouldn't have been better with without Crispin. Uh, did I say that right? Uh, you know what I mean. But um, I think they did well without him. But I think that uh, it certainly was a loss not to get him back. And I my understanding is that he was basically demanding more money than they were able to give him, and they had to let him go. Yeah, it, it says it says. Uh, uh, in Wikipedia, <laughs> that it was a contract disagreement, <laughs> which which yeah. typically means they failed to secure the proper contract negotiation ahead of time. Because typically, when you sign actors, you'll do like a deal, you'll do a clause where they have to come back, you know, on the same pay scale for uh, sequels. And apparently, they failed to secure that properly. It was my guess. I mean, it's happened before, and and that's that's what looks like it happened here. And it's just a shame because he was really good. No. So, so did you already mention what it did worldwide and in, in the box office? I haven't mentioned that yet. Um, okay. It it uh it did it was on a budget. The first film was on of course the smallest budget as is often the case the small budgets produce the best films. Um 19 million dollars. Mm. Uh so not not a lot. Uh I suppose by those days standards that would I'd wager a guess it's more like a you know 60 or 70 million dollar film by today's inflated money. Um, but 19 million at that time, the box office um, has to date uh, grossed 210 million dollars with a total worldwide of 381 million. So it's it's made a good amount of money back. Yes, and along these lines, uh, as far as its uh, success, it's also won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation and the Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film, as well as an an Academy Award and Golden Globe nominations, among others. And Ronald Reagan, when he was president, quoted the film in his 1986 State of the Union address. And in 2007, the Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. And in uh, June of 2008, the American Film Institute Special AFI's Top 10 uh, designated films in the best of top 10 films for the science fiction genre. It selected it, and it became marked as the uh, the 10th in the lineup for blah, the best blah, of sci-fi. Blah. It's won a lot of awards. <laughs> yeah, well, it's I mean, well it's kind of weird. Well, it, it is well-reserved, I mean, deserved, yeah. But at the same time, 
there's other really you know remarkable artsy films on the top of that list like 2001 space odyssey Ugh, and nice. this is on the opposite end of the spectrum absolutely, right absolutely yes back to the future the, this and, film like actually yeah. has plot uh, whereas 2001 a space odyssey has no plot <laughs> well, not just not just an issue with plot. If anything, uh, just character, and I, that's the thing is that Batch of the Future is uh, successful not solely on plot, but also on the brilliant characters that go up and down the spine. Oh, sure, that is the plot. It's I, just remarkable characters. I think the first Back to the Future film excels at two things. Um, one is its plot and its story, and two, its characterization of those of the characters in that story. You no, know, they don't all have the best character arcs. Yeah, you know, we're not saying they have the best character development, but they have great characters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I'll say this for the first film too. It's it's the tightest in terms of how the internal mechanics of time travel works. When we get to part two, I will certainly have to address my irritations at how time travel is not consistent with itself the way it was <laughs> in the first film. <clears throat> Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Chad says in the chat room, also, it's setups and payoffs. And I completely agree with that. There's so much stuff that you you get when you because now that I've watched the film, I don't know how many dozens of times. Um, every time I watch it now, I go, oh, look, look, they're setting up that thing that's going to pay off later. It, it is a remarkably tight script that, that you just, they didn't quite achieve that again after the first film. Um hmm. Uh, you know, the, the one of the notes that I made while watching the film was that the opening sequence, uh, that that is a really awesome opening sequence that really sets the tone for this film. You, you know what I'm talking about? Well, how do you figure? Well, the, the, this, 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 the film starts where they're panning across clocks, right? Oh, yeah. And the, the oh. TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> but, but then you kind of come to some mad scientific inventions where the clocks are motivating things that the doctor brown has made you know pouring dog food and thing this is all but but the, the remarkable thing i would notice this of course as a filmmaker right but the remarkable thing is that the entire first i don't know five minutes of the film maybe it's not quite that long i don't know one it, feel, it feels shot, like it but no, it is good one yeah. shot one continuous fluid shot everything has to be perfect i i, I wrote in my notes i wonder how many takes that took to get right because everything has to happen on cue right at the same time or else you bust a shot and you got to start over um you know as, as you come you pan over to the tv let's talking about the missing plutonium which then pans down under the bed and there's the plutonium case and it's just it's it's awesome yeah, but there's things <laughs> like that right that really stand out in the first well i guess it's all three films and it was one of the great qualities about a, zemeckis films in general yeah. that he puts in those little things that you overlook the first time Absolutely. I, I've seen the all these films dozens of times, and I only noticed the plutonium case sitting in Doc Brown's lab uh, for the first time uh, this past weekend when watching these films. Because uh, what I was, uh, what I noticed was I was like, wait a minute, I thought Doc Brown was getting the plutonium that day at that very time when he was he was out with Einstein and Marty showed up at the house and no, 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 he no. wasn't around. So. It never occurred to me. Oh wait a minute! That's a, that's a case of plutonium sitting right there. Huh. Th yeah. But there's little things like that, right? That creep up in all three of the films, and you just don't notice them the first time through. Yeah. I also have to ask, what was the deal with skateboards in the '80s? I think I just missed uh, that fad because I really am more of a child of the '90s than the '80s. Uh, like I, I was born in '82. But what is it? Because skateboards, like who, well, you know, who, skateboards were pretty big in the early '90s too. You know. 
Yeah, I never rode a skateboard, so I don't know. I guess I, I, I we that, we took but. care of uh, the movie Hook. You know what was it last week or the week before? And that that film also, which was released in '91, it, it featured skateboards very prominently for yeah. for Peter Pan of all things. I mean, come on, who had ever heard of skateboards in Neverland before or since? <laughs> right. So. Yeah, no, that's true. So, yeah, I, I don't get what's up with skateboards, but Marty rocked a skateboard for sure. And it, of course, became a big part of the kind of the, the skateboard, the hoverboard kind of became a thing for the whole film series. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's be grateful that the, the skateboard was not the time vehicle, you know, <laughs> or a refrigerator <laughs> <laughs> or a refrigerator on a skateboard. Yeah. yeah the, you know, one of the one of the things, too, that really I, I love about this film is in, in a lot of films um in general like this like like if you if this film were to be made now they'd probably be handheld shaky cam and they'd have to get to the action ah, sequences right. sooner and, and and the thing that I love about this film is it's not impatient in its storytelling it doesn't mind making you wait a minute while it unfolds something i love that i love that yeah you're right yeah um, and, and, and films these days are so impatient in their storytelling. They have to get you right and propel you into the – A Good Day to Die Hard is a great example of this. Um, I, I was listening to the Slash Film podcast, a Slash Filmcast recently, and they were talking about A Good Day to Die Hard, and they talked about this. The original Die Hard, the original, the first Die Hard, it took – I think it was 30 to 35 minutes into that film before a single shot was fired or a single action item of any note happened because they took some time to tell you a story. And A Good Day to Die Hard is a great example of how far we've fallen, where you're propelled into this action. You don't even know what's going on, no story, no setup, and you're just, boom, you're in, and that's, that's the way it is. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just hate that. And and this film is one of those films that takes a little time to tell you a story, and I that's it's it's great. Well, and that's also one of the differences between the first in a series and its uh, sequels, you know, with uh, Toy Stories uh, – two and three it seems that pixar very deliberately made the effort to uh pace the stories similar to part one so that they gave you plenty of time to enjoy the characters and where they were at and what they're dealing with even if you hadn't seen the previous film in recent time you know it just you know toy story came out in 95 but toy story 3 came out in 2010 so if you hadn't watched parts one and two in a while uh, you still wanted to feel like you were connected to these characters, and yeah. so they needed to give you a little time to warm up to them again. So they give you just enough time in part, I mean, Act 1 of Toy Stories uh, 2 and 3 that you don't feel like, that. Y- yeah, they just fell into it really, really too fast and m- progress into Act 2, you know, in the first five minutes. Yeah, you're right. Huh, I hadn't considered that much. You know, something that I really like, too, is just the relationship between Marty and Doc is professional and one of friendship. And it's so unusual because he's a young guy in high school and the Doc is this, you know, he's not a hermit. He's not a recluse. He's just uh, your, um, you know, everyday mad town scientist. But he's not been a very, you know, useful one, except that he, you know, he, apparently he does something good with the weather. So the local people respect him. They don't consider him a kook. Um, so maybe he's good with the weatherman. Well, well, oh, okay. Hold, hold on. Speaking of, I got to just mention this. Um, there's a, there's a deleted scene on the DVD 
where it explains that a little more because I've always thought that was a little odd, right? The weather scene where he's, oh yeah, of course I have my permit. It's in here somewhere. Well, it shows it was cut, but it shows that he was actually handing them like a fifty dollar bill. <laughs> right here's my permit. <laughs> oh, really? Huh. Yeah, it's a cut scene, but that was the way that was intended to work. It was not that he was actually known to do, be doing weather stuff and, and that he had a permit, but that he was paying the the guy off to go away. Huh. <laughs> I could see why they took that out, but it's it's a uh, that'd be that. I wish they could actually figure out a way to put that oh, back in, or that, that works been so left well in. for Doc yeah. Brown's character. I wish that had been yeah. left in, but uh, and, and well, especially the fifties, Doc Brown character didn't have enough going for him. He was just uh, used to take care of the mechanics for Marty at times, usually. Um, yeah, and of but course if you he, think he about had, it, he, he was had really all the funny the lines. Hero. Yeah, sure, yeah. In, in a way, yeah. He, he, you know, he's. Heavy, heavy. What? Why is this so heavy? What, what is, is there a problem with the gravitational pull in the 1985? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He he caught and the radiation suit. Yeah, when he is uh, watching the video. It's, over it's and over from again. all the nuclear fallout from all the wars. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. That's what, I mean, it just obviously. <laughs> well, and also, it's the 50s doc that gives us uh, Marty's cowboy outfit in part three. I mean, come on. How could you beat that? I mean, obviously, that's what, you know, he's watching Howdy Doody in the mornings. And so that's that's what the Westerns, you know, the guys wear. Who dressed you in that? You did, doc. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, but, which uh, that, that gets in a little bit of the inconsistency of time travel mechanics in the later in the last two films. But he should have remembered that he sent him back in that. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> um. But it had been such a long time. Do you think he was really thinking about it by that point? Well, you would think, though, that he would remember a momentous event like sending himself, sending Marty back for himself into the 1885. But if he remembered doing that, all right, we're talking about the travel, time travel inconsistent logic. But if he remembered doing that, you'd think that he would also uh, yeah. remember that he had been sent back and therefore find a way to prevent himself from being sent back, therefore preventing the need. Yeah. Way too much. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. But then again, I also always took it for granted that Doc understood when he needed to just fall in step with the occurrences through time. So I, I actually thought about that a, a number of years ago, and I just figured, oh well, Doc knows what he's doing. He knows that he has to go back to 1985 because that's what happens, mm-hmm. you know. So he's he, he, the second time reliving the experiences, so to speak. He's going to just let it happen because he knows. Well, what else am I going to do? Or I will mess up the space time continuum, you know. Yeah. Well, so yeah, he, right, he he'd be right. he, you know Marty probably couldn't handle that, but Doc could. So, all right. Um. One of the other things that I noticed um, that, that, you know, it, it's the slight imperfections in the film. There, there are imperfections in the film that endear you to the film, and then there are imperfections that you that really kind of push you away a little bit. And it's why I don't give this film a full five-star rating. I, I, I give it – well, I'll, I'll get to what I give it in a minute. Um, but um, the one thing that I noticed that really kind of threw me for a, a spin that, that kind of took away from the film was the gunfire sounds – were uh, very fake and, and yeah. that was not machine gun fire we were hearing and that was obviously machine guns and, and things that we were supposed to be seeing and hearing and the, the gunfire sound was very fake <laughs> okay come on tj that that's so nitpicky you're not being honest is that really what bothered you it about bothered part me. two it, no 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 this is part one it bothered me wait a minute where was there gunfire in part one wait you claim to like oh to right <laughs> 
Ah, okay. Well, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about the Libyans because they had so little to do with the entire film. They did, but, but still, it bothered me. Like they're, they're firing these guns, and you got these, these uh, old, like, like almost sounds like they're from the '40s. The, the sound effects, the, you know, in a kind of like ricochet bullet sound effect thing going on. I'm like, what? what? This is dumb. (laughs) You're right. Um, yeah, they have the Libyans that come in and attack Marty and the Doc at the beginning at the strip mall, and that's when Doc gets shot, and Marty has to escape to the 50s, and, and then they, yeah, relive the scene all over again. And you're right, the sound effects, you hear them at the beginning and the end of the film. You're right. But they also come back with those terrible sound effects for part two in the 1980s um, um, Hell on Earth sequence, and uh, Strickland is shooting at oh, things yeah, that, in the street and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. They it, did do that. Yeah, uh, same stuff. Although the one time it kind of worked was with the Western stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I it didn't bother me with the Western stuff. Um, but you know, like the one time when uh, uh, Buford Tannen was shooting that little pea shooter at Doc during the dance, and that that little gun was just really small. It was like a Derringer or something. Brisbee, ca- far out. Yeah, well, when he shoots that that little dinky gun, it, it creates a boom like it's a Magnum three fifty seven, like any other gun. <laughs> right, and, right. Yeah, and it was like, what? Yeah, yeah. Those, it, it, I've shot those guns; they don't produce that kind of sound. You're right. I had never thought about it though. Yeah. Just in the back of my mind, it somehow worked. Like when you know, old fashioned movies had the the typical you know, bam, pow, sound effects when punches and kicks were thrown. <laughs> we, oh, you know, come on. Well, this is, we're not smashing. talking about Batman here, though. No, I we're mean, like the sound. I'm, I'm talking about, like, the phony sound of, you know, type smack, you know, that. True, psh, yeah, yeah. You know, that that Which, noise. Even yeah, that was kind of, is, even, is all phony. Even so, I mean, even nowadays, I mean, because we're, we're trained, I think, to expect some sort of noise with the, mm-hmm. the punches because, Punches don't make the noises they even make nowadays in films. But there's something much <laughs> less fake, and maybe it's just because we've been trained about it today. There's something much less fake about it today than back yeah. in those days. Yeah, you're right. So, um, <sighs> we're just uh, but but to, letting, ma- to, yeah. to make up for that, um, the, the annoyance of that, the the rest of the sound design worked well. And in speaking of sound, um, the music for this film, I think is some of Alan Silvestri's best work. I mean, as much as I love the Avengers and his work, Alan Silvestri's work on the Avengers, I really love the soundtrack, the score for this film. And, and are even, you kidding? No comparison, really. Oh, I don't know about that. There, the Avengers is pretty good. Go listen to it. The but, Avengers works on its own, but it's not as interesting when watching the film. Uh, Whereas Back to the Future is something you can get you sink into your teeth I, I disagree. I, I think it. that Back to the Future is a little bit better. But I think that Avengers is right up there. And anyway, but but the point is, his work on this film, Alan Sylvester's work, is amazing. But even the even the, normally, I'm not a fan of using pop music in a film. But I think what the difference is that the pop music here, because this is a quintessential '80s film, right? And the pop music here, it's not used to underscore the film the way the the score is, but it's used to accentuate that which makes this film an '80s film in a good way, right? So even the pop music from the '80s used in this film worked very well. Uh, a, a good example of a badly done uh, music for a film is *Flight of the Navigator*, uh, where they used so much pop music in that it, it was just so terrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I know what you mean. 
So Those, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think we the, were spared with a lot of the the movies scored by John Williams for the '80s. They just took them out of the air. Their entire decade, they helped to rescue those films. And Zemeckis kind of came borderline with Part Two of Back to the Future, but it had a lot to do with what huh, you know the, was necessitated by the story. But yeah, you're right. Well, um, okay. So my thing is though, when it, when it when it's necessitated by the story, it's okay to use modern music. But when you use music in a way that's supposed to obviously be scoring the film that's very modern, it, it doesn't hold up well over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a great example of this to me in the TV world is um, Star Trek Enterprise. Even though it's a fairly new series, uh, and, and the overall scores of each episode are fine, but the theme music is pop, uh, uh, done in a pop style. It does, really? not, it does not work well at all. I, huh. I think it was dated by the time it got out to the screens. It's just terrible. You should never do that. It should always be music that transcends the time period, and it can have a much longer life. And and Alan Silvestri easily accomplished that with this film. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, my my one other minor quibble. We've been talking about likes and dislikes, kind of intermingled. So, but but one other minor quibble with this film. I think that this film is probably the most consistent in the way it handles time travel. But the one thing that has always bothered me is why didn't Marty remember the changes that he himself made to the timeline? Like why? Like he has the memories from the previous timeline, and yet the changes he affected almost wiped him out. So they obviously do affect him. But why didn't they affect his memories? It's just a little bit of an inconsistency that's kind of always bothered me. Like he, right. So when he's up there playing the guitar, you're thinking, well, why doesn't he remember the ramifications and the changes to his life when his wife, his mom, and his dad get together this better way? Right. Obviously, he has no memory of that at all. When he gets back, he didn't know that Biff would be there polishing his car. He didn't know that his dad now had the upper hand over Biff and that he was in the superior position. He he didn't remember that his his brother and sister were no longer losers. Uh, he didn't remember that his, his mom wasn't a drunk anymore. Uh, it, it, it just didn't make sense because the other changes that he was affecting had an effect on him. You would think it would also have an effect on his memory. Right. Well, so, in this particular case though, TJ, I think you gotta be more forgiving of, um, you know, this it's, not particular... a big, it's not a big deal. It just bothers me a little bit. Right. But I mean, don't think of back to the future as solely a sci-fi. It's a sci-fi fantasy. Oh, sure. You know, that of it's, you know, it's, it, there's a little bit of the romance going on, the comedy. Sure. There's an element of drama, but it's a hodgepodge. And I that's agree. somewhat, yeah, that fantastic quality is when they need to, the, the sci-fi is used to tell a, uh, sort of modern day eighties. Yes, I know not modern, you know, we'll call it modern, not present day. Um, depiction of hmm, a fairy tale. It's kind of like that. Uh, it, it, it it's really just an elaborate um fantasy uh plot device, the sci-fi element, and so it does what it needs to to develop the storyline the way the storyteller wants it to tell you the story. I mean, it is that's what's going on because. Um, what the storyteller wants you to do is they want you to experience certain things along with Marty. So when Marty gets back to the you know 1985 and witnesses um, the changes in, to his family and his home and what his parents are like and his siblings are like, they, they want the audience wants to enjoy the changes along with Marty. And it wouldn't make any sense at first to the audience 
inexperienced with time travel scenarios and how the, all those physics are supposed to work to watch as Marty just, you know, goes about his normal life as this, as if this is the way it always was. You no, know what I mean? agree. It's a hard, made, it would have been yeah. a hard problem to solve. Like, like yeah. one way that a, a movie, little movie that, magic went a long way there. Yeah. One of the movies that I think handled this really well is a movie called frequency. Um, and I, and it basically, as he's changing time, he retains both sets of memories. Uh, that that also is probably inconsistent, but for oh, some man, reason that works tough. that works better for me. But but in any event, yeah, I, it, it, it as Chad mentions in the chat room, it's a great reveal for the audience, and and I, I agree. I, I think cinematically it makes sense. It's just a little bit of an annoyance in the inconsistency. But you're right. I mean, it, it's a minor quibble, and this film is the most internally consistent in how it handles time travel. Mm. So um, I think we've said all that we can say about the first film. Uh, no, we haven't, but we've said a lot about the first <laughs> film, and we'll probably say more about it. But let's let's talk about our star ratings. Um, oh, Chad, you had to bring up Looper. Um, I like Looper, <laughs> but I think that it's very inconsistent in how it handles time travel. We'll put our episode in, in, of the review of Looper into the show notes. Oh, thanks. Now i got to go dig it up. <laughs> All right, I'll make a note to do that. Um, so, so, yeah, what do you rate this film, Joe, the first film? Well, the thing is, is Back to the Future works on many levels for the audience. And so I, I, in general audiences, you know, speaking there. And so I really, I think it deserves a high praise and it's deserved the accolades it's got over the years. I'm giving it four and a half. And uh, the only reason I don't give it quite five stars is because there's a a lot of movie masterpieces that can work timelessly um, uh, 30 years later. And they seem like they could have been made just yesterday, apart from the sh- a shortcoming here and there, which is very minor, uh, like a nuance. Like even let's take uh, animated films. Animated films have come a long way since the original Toy Story of '95, but Toy Story of '95 doesn't feel dated in what it shows. It feels dated in terms of its special effects technology. But even with that, the visual effects work pretty no, they, well yeah, when compared to modern CG. Yeah. 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 So uh, there's nothing really about uh, Toy Story, the original, that seems dated, all things considered. But with the original Back to the Future, 85, there are qualities about it that scream that it is stuck. And um, some of the things that I just don't like to reflect on uh, in qualities of the 80s and so forth. Uh, So for that reason, because of its dated film-esque quality... I would give it a, a minus one half a star. And I, like I said, it gets a four and a half out of five. Yeah. I am actually going to rate it exactly the same. And I, I, I feel pretty much the same way. Although the, the I don't think that the 80s aspects bother me too much because I think it, it, it is a film set in 1985. That is when all three films are set. It, the, the, the present day of the film universe is 1985. Th- that works for me. That's all fine. But there, there are enough, and I've mentioned them as we talked about it, there are enough little things that bother me that I... I give it four and a half stars. Uh, it's it's a great film. If you, I, I can't even believe I, I would even think to say this, but if you haven't seen the film, shame on you. Everybody who's listening to this has seen the film. There's no doubt. Yeah, our okay. listeners are wiser than that. <laughs> um, and Ebert, I will recommend Ebert too. Um, he he, uh, his scale of the films also is very similar to mine. He liked the first film a lot. He rated it. His his system is a four star system. He gave it uh, three and a half stars. So. Essentially the same thing we're giving it, and I had a, had a great review of that. I'll put that in the in the show notes. Um, 
So uh, I don't always agree with Ebert, but uh, he did a good job this time. So, hmm. all right, Back to the Future Part Two. We we got a. We probably won't spend as long talking about these because they're not as good films. Back to the part, Future Part Two and Part Three. Um, so Back to the Future Part Two. The storyline is the film takes place immediately after the events of Back to the Future. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. I uh, what what is going on? What has happened to my notes? Something is wrong here. I thought I pasted in here the storyline and it's gone. No, you didn't. Well, anyway, just make it up. Okay. Marty Mc, <laughs> uh, so they take place immediately after the events of Back to the Future Part 1. Uh, Marty McFly just got, has just gotten back from the past where he's once again picked up by Dr. Emmett Brown and sent through time to the future with Emmett Brown this time. That's a little bit misleading. Marty's job in the future is to pose as his own son to prevent him from being thrown in prison. Unfortunately, things get worse when the future changes the present. Uh, that's kind of misleading too. <laughs> so, but it, it is a harder film to, to encapsulate the way the first one was. It's harder to, to kind of relay the plot. Um, so, oh, Chad has done the legwork for me. It's episode 12 where we talked about Looper. Um, and, uh, by the way, since he's interacting with us in the chat room, I'll just mention he's giving the film, the first film, five stars. It's his all time favorite movie. Mm. So, uh, and I agree that the themes of the film, as he's saying, are timeless, uh, and the character is endlessly relatable. So, um, yeah, actually, I was just getting to that, Chad. The, 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 um, the, this was not in, intended to be a trilogy. Um, the, the, the first film was meant to be a standalone film. And after its wild success, the, obviously, they felt like they needed to go and develop more films. And one of the interesting things is, uh, I, I've, as I was watching the special features, not this time that I watched the films, but the last time I watched the films, I watched a few special features on my DVD set. And uh, he talks, Zemeckis talks about how he would not have put Jennifer in the car with Marty had he realized he was going to be making a sequel. <laughs> and that was kind of a problem in the writing. And what do you do with Jennifer? I, I kind of wish she had been more involved in the plot, but, you know. Well, why? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's one of my great disappointments with part two. I agree. Was that they just decided to write her out of the story. I could understand incorporating her in part two and then finding a way to get her out of the picture for part three. Uh, I, that's what I wished it had done, and, and to develop the story. And Jennifer was one of the, you know, decent side characters as well in part one. She didn't have much to do, but you figured that her relationship with Marty was going someplace. And then when part two happens, uh, you know, they're not going to give as much of a serious role to, say, George McFly. They may have developed um, Jennifer's character to seven as the significant side character supporting role that George's could have, you know, for part two. Yeah, now uh, there now, wasn't that sort of support from a side character in part two. Notice that besides Biff, who is the leading villain, you have Doc and Marty, and then a lot of people that are just doing things around them that they're trying to avoid. Uh, there's really no interaction. Uh, there's so little interaction with the other characters that it feels like there's a disconnect in the, in the the scenes around them and Marty and Doc. So it bugs me that so much is wrapped and consumed by the plot involving the Tannins and gets away from the the other supporting characters. Yeah, I, I, I think you went south there a little bit toward the end of your talk there, but I, I agree in, in part. Um, <clears throat> so, but, but they also may have felt like they couldn't... Um, they couldn't use 
Jennifer because they had to change actresses. I, I guess what I, I'm given to understand is that the previous actress, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have her name right in front of me, but she had actually, uh, because she actually was a teenager, unlike, uh, <laughs> unlike, uh, uh, Michael J. Fox, she got taller and it didn't, it felt like they were not able to use her again as Jennifer. <laughs> yeah. And so they had to recast yeah. Jennifer. So she's played by a different actors, which also, so this is an interesting trivia. I never, I didn't realize that that was why. Man. Uh, yeah. So this is interesting uh, trivia. They had to reshoot the entire ending sequence of that they had done for Back to the Future 1 because it's the beginning of Back to the Future Part 2. They reshot that whole sequence, and it's amazing because if it's not side-by-side, side, you don't really realize it. Right. Uh, in fact, I I don't remember realizing until oh a few years ago that – I didn't realize until I started following films you know a lot closer and started looking at names that it was a different actress. I mean – Unless you watch the films part one and then go immediately to part two and see, oh, she looks a little different, you probably wouldn't notice it. Um, I certainly notice it now, obviously, now that I'm really following films. But it's 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 you know it's kind of one of those funny things. Uh, but they they actually in the special features had a side by side where they did like on on the top and on the bottom you had the 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 scene from the end of part one and the scenes from the beginning of part two, and they match up pretty close. Sometimes they get a little out of sync and they got to cut and move things around a little bit to try to get them to match back up. But, but they, you know, they did a pretty remarkable job of reshooting. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit of trivia. Another little bit of trivia is, uh, this is Elijah Wood's first appearance in a feature film. We had that trivia on our movie by Facebook page, not too long ago, but he was one of the wild gunmen, uh, kids. Well, gunman video and games. nobody would even. Oh, right, right, right. Nobody would even notice those kids. Really, no. you're more you're paying more attention to the arcade game there in that little cafe. So yeah, now yeah, um, that that is as as we've already alluded to. One of the great disappointments in this film is that Jennifer is. You can almost feel them pushing her aside. Uh, the writers like we we don't even want her here. We we we, we wish she, we didn't even have to write about her. We wish she weren't here. Uh, you know, and it's like why. Why? Why not write her into the plot instead of trying to write her out? She's already there. You've been handed this thing. This is what you have to work with. So it's kind of frustrating. Um, and on that note, it doesn't seem to me like if uh, you know they were trying to turn this into a movie without part one and they just had in mind for this uh, singular story that could somehow develop the characters and the situation around the events of part two that they could have that this film would have ever even been made. It, this script is just lackluster compared to part one. And no, no, so much no, so, no, no, I don't no, think that the production uh, would have gone through. See, now there I disagree with you immensely. Uh, I think that they've done, they did with this script a remarkable job of of fitting it like a hand to a glove, other than the Jennifer thing, of fitting it like a hand uh, into a glove, of, of, of lacing it around and with the events of Back to the Future Part 1, but putting new and interesting spin and twist on it, like these events are happening simultaneously in 1955 that happened before, only now we've got two Marty McFly's, we have to avoid letting the first one know that the second one is there, and it just, I, I, I find it very, it's great, it's fascinating, it's, it's, it's wonderfully written. I, I, I oh, yeah. have to completely well, disagree with you. Well, see, the thing is, I, my favorite things about Part 2 and why I like it much at all are for some of the characters that, I can t that continue to uh, equal their quality from Part 1. And uh, the other quality that really works in Part 2 is the return to the 50s. Anything to do with young Biff and uh, young uh, George and Elaine. What was, wasn't her name Elaine, the mom? 
Anyway, uh, Lorraine. Lorraine. Yeah. It all works out just great. I, I love the 50s era stuff and uh, Young Doc. That stuff is great. Yeah, no problems there. I think that Robert Zemeckis was in the zone. And because he had uh, crossed those uh, pathways with his story so many times preparing part one, that it was very easy to return to those parts of the uh, the history of the family and what was going on with these characters for part two. If he wanted to write a completely additional story surrounding events in the 1955 moment, I bet he could. He probably could come up with something just out of hat. He knows every day of the week there in October and November for these characters. But what the film suffers in is in the future things. And in the 1980s, when it's um, Biff's world taking over a Hill Valley, it's those things that really irk me. And I don't think live up to the rest of the series because uh, the evil, powerful Biff in the 80s taking over Hill Valley. Come on. The thing is, is I I know that. I know he would be a brute. I know that he would be obnoxious to the nth degree. He probably would be responsible for many crimes, and he would be extremely wealthy. But come on! Hill Valley turned into a toxic waste city, and the fact that he has, like, a Las Vegas-style casino uh, built at the center of the town square to replace the courthouse where the clock tower is in Hill Valley, a toxic waste dump city with a casino in the middle of it. It's it's ridiculous. I admit you can't think too hard about it, but I actually enjoy it quite a bit. And I don't like what it does to the character of Lorraine. It, it's nonsensical. It's too dramatic. It's over the top. The characters don't well, seem no, to so no, be, that, believe that, their roles. That makes sense to me because Lorraine, Actors, I mean. Lorraine was a drunk in the first film. Obviously, she was drinking and drunk and just, you know, crazy. And, and, and it makes sense to me that in this version of the timeline where uh, things go so completely south that she would become a complete and total head case. That, that makes complete sense to me. Well, the concepts work, but what don't, it doesn't work is the execution. I don't so agree. that the 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 acting just doesn't isn't consistent with the quality of part one and even part three. Really, mm, I thought the acting so. was great. So uh, this is this is my second favorite of the trilogy. So I know most people go one three two. I go one two three, just like Roger Ebert does. By the way, um, so yeah. I, I enjoyed the, like I said, the really my biggest complaint, there, there's two big complaints I have with this film, and each of them knock about a half a star off my rating from five. Um, one is, as I've already alluded to, the Jennifer thing where she's, uh, where she's just, they're visibly pushing her aside, like, we don't even want you here. And then the second thing is the inconsistency of the time travel plot. Um, okay, so if going to the future, the, this is the first problem. Every indication is that if you were to remove yourself from the timeline and put yourself in the future, as Marty and Doc and Jennifer have done, you cease to exist at that point in time, and the timeline moves on without you. So how come they're there in the timeline, right? Because all indications are, if you were to do that from the previous film, all indications are that that wouldn't work, because this is a paradoxical situation, right? oh yeah you're right so that's the first complaint the second complaint is if biff then so let's just put that aside and say now now if biff goes back to 1955 and gives himself that book the timeline should be instantly instantaneously changed around them right and and they should not even know 
Yeah, and no, he older should not Biff have, would have never even gone back to right, the 50s. Right, but instead it's like he's fading out of existence. But how did he even get there? Because when they went back to 1985, now suddenly they're in the new timeline, but they have the memories from the other timeline, and it just doesn't, that, that whole thing, that business is nonsensical. So that knocks another half star off my rating. Um, now, now after that, time travel becomes a little more consistent because now they've created this alternate timeline. That all makes sense. The, the events have changed things from 1955. Now you go back and you fix it. So uh, it, it's, it's a little bit nitpicky, but it's, it's pretty – and I know you're going to throw the fantasy thing out there. Well, it's fantasy and you got to go with it. And to some extent, yes, but when you go too far, <laughs> it, it, it bothers me and it does. It, it bothers yeah. me a little bit. No, I understand. So what bothers it, you doesn't bother me, but it's it's yeah it's along the same train of thought, and it, it boils down to just it seems so ambitious that it's over the top. And that's my biggest problem with part two was that it was asking way too much because they had the characters all over the place. You were you didn't have enough time to really uh, grow accustomed to the future world before you left it, and <laughs> you still had so many questions, right? And uh, but, but, Marty's family was so annoying as a whole. It, they were very difficult to get, you know, to like. Okay. So, I got to mention this, though. Speaking of Marty's family, uh, not only – okay, and this is a little bit weird, too, yeah. right? Like, not, not only does does uh, Michael J. Fox play Marty and Marty Jr., uh, which uh, I'll get to that in a minute – he plays his daughter too. <laughs> it's a it's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, well, I think everybody by now knows that because it they, it was so ah uh, she was so weird. <laughs> it was really weird, yeah. like over the top, stupid, weird, dumb. I, I I would not have made that choice. Like find somebody else. Yeah. Um, and even having him play his own son, who looks exactly like their father, and whose father could come come and be the, and 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 uh, replace their son. I mean, that just doesn't work. So that's a little, but, but, but at the same time, that's kind of fun. So I, I give that a pass. Um, yeah, we were of course introduced to hoverboards that, which is probably the most awesome thing about this movie. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, one of my other f- uh, favorite details, uh, going back to the details that make a lot of Zemeckis, uh, films just great. You know, that, uh, pl- the antique shop where Marty wanted to grab the copy of the, uh, almanac. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they have almanac a shop that window. caused so much trouble. Yeah, yeah, well, they have the shop window for all things 80s antiques. And, uh, you know, this is supposed to be 2015 in the movie where Marty is looking into the window and there's things like a a stuffed um, Roger Rabbit, um, which, you know, is from another one of Robert Zemeckis' films. And it was a huge success. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So right. that makes sense. Yeah. But there were other, you know, crazy, silly knickknacks of the 80s. But one of those things in there was the original 1984 Macintosh computer, which was the big Apple computer success. And the reason I'm saying this is because I'm an Apple's fan and everybody here should know that. But the thing is, is that to uh, modern day culture, Apple is a big thing as of recent years. And until recently, Apple was, you know, not very cool, not very interesting to a lot of people. And you wouldn't expect to find one of their items in an antique store. But then now, because I don't know. Apple I, is I, so daggum popular, it kind of makes some sense. I don't know about that, Joe. I would say even if Apple never made their comeback that they started making in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think that the original Mac would still be a popular antique item because it was it a would, huge deal. It changed the face of computing. That's, that's yeah, aside, but it's but, not the kind of thing you would expect to find in your everyday to antique store because yeah, that, it, it wouldn't be as mainstream. Maybe. It is mainstream now because of the success that Apple's experienced in recent years. 
one of the things that's my logic there yeah i yeah i get it one of the things that i do like though um is is this completely stupid version of 2015 like our 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 upcoming 2015 2013 2015 it doesn't look anything like they're imagining it to look like right (laughs) which and i I think they were they 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 took it so over the top like even on purpose like we know we're never going to be able to get the future right so we're just going to depict it really you know over the top and it's it's a pretty fun version like i kind of wish i lived in that version of 2015 in some ways in some ways well it just looked like a uh a glorified version of the 80s dude i don't know about that i know that's why i say in some ways um but yeah it uh yeah it it was uh basically the 80s relived with brighter colors a little bit of gloss and hover cars i mean oh (laughs) they really i want to get say that they had a lot of creativity there and i'm glad that they put a lot of effort into it with holographic sharks and stuff like that and i like it that robert didn't go off the deep end like so many other sci-fis and you know change the world in huge dramatic ways right like it wasn't like that they were all um a city in the clouds or something you know crazy high you know flying sci-fi type stuff it was that the the world around you had just gone on for another 30 years, right? It still looked like the world basically does. Um, if you cl- if you didn't look at anything I- I- directly, but just saw everything in your peripheral vision from his vision of 2015 and the modern probably reality of 2015, you could say that they might be matching worlds, but. Um, yeah, I mean it, it. It's a it's a problem with any time yeah. you're telling a future story. You don't. It you, looks like a studio backlot extreme extravaganza. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. The the one thing that uh, up until recently I think we all might have thought was a little odd was the the AT and T logo plastered on all the phone calls and stuff. And you're like AT and T. They're they're like the, the, ba- barely even a cell phone carrier, and they don't have yeah. any landlines anymore. And then all of a sudden, you know, the name came back. So that that even that works now. <laughs> you're right, huh? Um, yeah. Coincidental. So anyway, um, yeah. Chad put a link in the uh, chat room, which I'll uh, put in the show notes. 11 predictions that Back to the Future Part 2 got right. And I think they're reaching a little bit on some of these, but the technology does technically exist. So there you go. I'll put that in the show notes. Hmm. Um, what else have you got? No. Well, you know, like I've already described, uh, I have my general issues with Part 2. But one of the great things about Part 1 was it introduced the Flying DeLorean and just <laughs> other brilliant, uh, you know, uh, things as in the way of the technology make up for some of the annoying plot points. Uh, you know, there's really nothing uh, notable from the 80s era that was redone to be Biff's world. Um, there was, it, it, it changed nothing positively or negatively as far as technology was concerned. It was just a very dystopian, you know, version of down you know, small town America, right? Mm-hmm. But as far as it introduced stuff for the future, it you know, there was a little creativity as far as the technology was concerned. And man, don't you wish that clothes would auto-dry for you? And, no, I and, have you know, no desire for that. mold for you, like, <laughs> to your size. Man, especially those Nike tennis shoes. I wish I, I had auto-lace-up shoes. I, I do like, uh, although, you know, we have this technology now called Surrey where we could talk to our phones, and I find I don't much because it's a little odd, right? Like, Surrey, do this for me. It's just like when you're around, like if I'm by myself, I tend to use Surrey on my phone more. But I, I, I don't see talking 
uh, technology. It always looks cool in the movies. Like, it's really cool here to say, yeah, TV, show me channel four, eight, ten, whatever channels it was he mentioned. And, you know, yeah. or, you know, the retracting fruit. Hey, retract, kid, you know, yeah, the Jr. retracting fruit. But, um, I don't see talking, uh, technology as that cool and in, in reality. So I don't know. Anyway, um, did we mention the budget and stuff for this film? No, I, don't, I think we did. Um, Oh, I've got the wrong in theater date. I don't remember what date it came to theaters. Uh, but the budget is uh, forty million, so much inflated from the eighteen million from the previous film. Uh, and it uh, has only grossed domestically one hundred eighteen million, but total worldwide is much closer to the previous film. Not quite as high, but three hundred thirty-one million nine hundred fifty thousand. So, um, yeah, it did, it was, it, it all did okay all, for us. Not the kind, yeah, it did okay, but it's it's surprising what a difference there is between part two and part one because normally sequels outdo you know the the original films. Uh, right? I don't know if that's a universal truth or not. It, for films in theaters of this proportion, you know, with this kind of budget by this kind of studio by this kind of director, I'm not talking about you know low budget, you know. Cinderella 17, you know, Disney, re, you know, spinoff remakes for television and DVD, uh, you know, the, the big stuff by power hitter, you know, directors like these, it seems like they, even if they're, they're not as good of films, they still do better than the original film. So it is odd. All right. How do you rate back to the future part two? <sighs> this is going to be brutal for me. I know, but go ahead. <laughs> nah, it's not really brutal. I think all things considered, I'd give it a two and a half. That's because, brutal. And that's that's a saying that it doesn't do much for me and it doesn't do much against me. At the end of the day, the good and the bad cancel out each other. Because in and of itself, it's the bridge to you know for this series. It you have to see it if you're enjoying the whole of Back to the Future. And other than that, it does nothing for me. I never want to sit down and just watch Back to the Future Part 2. I would. I would. I totally would. I love it. Uh, I rate it four stars. Like I said, there was two things that kind of brought it down by half a star each, and so four stars. That's what I give it. I think it's a great film. No, I think it's a great film. I think you're way too hard on it. Mm. So, Back to the Future Part 3. At the end of Back to the Future Part 2, the uh, lightning strikes the DeLorean and sends it back uh, exactly, what, 70 years is it? From 1955 to 1885. Yes. Yes. uh so so obviously um he he writes a you know doc writes a letter and has it stored uh, and has instructions on when and where to meet uh uh, marty and give him the letter and says don't come back for me blah 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 and yet when they find his grave and that he'd been shot by buford tannen marty feels compelled to go back for him so uh it's kind of it in a nutshell and a little bit about the filmmaking uh it took place in both california and arizona and the film was released in the United States on May 25th, 1990. Uh, had the same budget as Part 2, $40 million. The film was a commercial success in making it uh, 1990's sixth highest grossing film. Critics also gave Part 3 better reviews than Part 2 when it was originally released, which had been met with you know mixed reviews at the uh, time, and I think that's probably because it, you know the critics felt like it was a, a fresh take, you know, where the first one felt to them like a rehash or whatever. I don't always, I think critics are stupid sometimes. <laughs> mm. Fair yeah. enough, but I I wouldn't doubt that the uh, well the other thing too is that this film was just economically uh, more successful than part two. My guess is is that a lot of people felt like you could potentially. Uh, like my dad did, 
you know, no, 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 uh, no, no. growing up, he thought that he could Hold actually. On. How do you get that? It made a lot less money than part one and part two or part two. No, didn't it? I got it right here. Where did I get it wrong? Eighty-seven million, and and part part two made uh, one hundred eighteen million domestically, and part one made uh, two hundred and ten yeah. million. Yeah. So wow. Yeah, and then uh, worldwide, it only grossed two hundred forty-four million. So it is it is the least of the money. It makes the least money of the three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Two hundred forty-four million worldwide. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Your your hmm. your mistake. It is my mistake, but it was still received better than part two. Critically, yes. But we don't know what it was as far as general audiences are concerned. What does it show up on Rotten Tomatoes? It should. Uh, 74%. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and part two got an 80%. So again, you are incorrect. What? Come on. Yeah. Weird. I guess it's because some now, people just have something against Westerns. You, know, compl- you, are, you are right critically. Uh, it, the cr- critics, it only gets a 64% on part two, but part three uh, gets a 73%. So uh, hmm. there you go. I, I, I think general audiences tend to agree more with me. But the critics, they tend to you, – you tend to side with the critics. So, so much for you being the every guy. <laughs> strange how that happens huh? um <clears throat> although i will say the most one of the most famous critics i tend to fall right in line with uh he he gave four and a half stars uh, three and a half stars to uh out of a four star system three and a half stars to the first one i think it was three to the second one and like two to the third one so hmm. so there you go um oh uh, i'm sorry I, I interrupted you because you were spewing incorrect facts but where were you well, I I don't remember. <laughs> just I guess the thing, the trick was, yeah. Okay, right here it said uh, I was just describing a little bit all the filmmaking, and I was done, TJ. So okay, carry on. Um, all right. Well, there you go. Um, yeah. I, boy, how do I describe this film? I I don't. Well, it's not like, like we're this, introducing it to our listeners. This we're, is the we're film. Just I know this. This is the film that I where where you said this about the previous film. I say that it's about this film. I would not choose to sit down and just watch this film. I only watch this film as part of the whole. I don't watch this film on its own. I, I don't care about for it that much. It's. Uh, but why is that? What it, is it about it that's is surprisingly so lackluster? Um, it's a western for one thing. It, okay, it, well, there it, 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 you're obviously biased. Yeah, it, it it's it feels like they take cheap um, gimmicks and tricks in this film, whereas before, if there were things that felt gimmicky or cheap, it 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 it, it didn't feel cheap. It felt creative. Um, the, the jokes were creative, and I felt like this was more of a eh, we're, we're out of ideas. We'll we'll just throw this out there. I I don't know. I just. It wasn't that interesting to me. Um, well, see, I kind of like it that it takes a slower pace and it sits back and it, it kind of reflects. It gives the guys time to consider consider some of the ramifications of their developments because Marty has been on the go crazy since the beginning of part one that the by the end of the events in part two, he has still just been like, what is it, a day or so into the future of the events of part one? Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy's so, got like two hours of sleep when he came home and crashed in 1985 yeah, yeah. and got up and was going to take Jennifer out. And here comes part, Doc. And then they're on the run, going, going, going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> part one takes a little over a week for those events to unfold. And then, yeah, he gets crammed with part two. Part three introduces time for the guys to reflect on the ramifications of their actions. And so 
it's interesting to me that Doc would choose. Uh, you know, there's a lot of character development for me in, in part three that I really appreciate. That part two doesn't afford you to enjoy because the events just have to happen so fast. But think about it. What does it say for Doc Brown's character that he would uh, willingly um, accept, gladly accept his present condition trapped in 1985? I I think it's interesting that the guy could never seem to be happy. He was always stir crazy in the 50s. He was always out to do something and highly anticipating his grandiose, innovative success when he finds some brilliant technology right? And that was what he does. And it's the culmination of all that energy and effort of his life work that happens in 1985 for Doc Brown. But when he finds himself going back to 19, uh, 1885, does he continue to pursue his life work? No, it actually impacts him so much that he is stuck in the night, the Western era that he decides to basically um, discontinue all of his scientific research and just be a very content Western um, man. So he becomes the you know the town. That's, you know. that's that's what that's what us regular people like to call out of character. I think it makes brilliant <laughs> character development because here he is. It's like he's almost thought he, that he has retired. I I don't know. Just to me, I thought that was kind of kind of clever. That the the fullness <sighs> of his um you know scientific research culminates in creating ice for his iced tea. <laughs> Well, you, yeah. you you would think with all his worry, which this is another thing that kind of bugs me, but you think with all his worry in the pre- previous two films about messing up the timeline, that he'd be doing everything he could to get out of there before he really messed something up. Right, but then they but then they also explained that too, right? Because um, Doc had had eight months to consider what he would want to write in his letter to Marty before he gave it to Western Union. Right. Uh, which uh, uh, Marty gets at the end of part, what is it, part two? He gets that letter? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, it, I think it makes some sense that Doc Brown had plenty of time to chillax and figure out what he actually wanted to do with the situation. Yeah, okay, so. well, you know, you're entitled to your wrong opinion. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh I, so, so you just, you know, think that, it, like you said, it was rather uninspired. It, it, I felt like it was, and but then I, what is it you do like about it? I mean, it, it, it does it well, still live up to the whole of the series, or is it I, lesser than? It's lesser than the first two for sure, but it, it's certainly necessary to complete the trilogy. I mean, certainly after part two, you gotta you, you got you can't just leave Doc stranded and Marty stranded. You got to do something about that. Well, see, that's another thing. You're just so anti-Western. I, I have to imagine that it affects your viewpoint on the rest of the plot devices. I suppose. And, I mean, I did find you know. some humor in the situation and stuff. I, I, oh, here's one of the other things that really, really bothers me uh, is the whole love at first sight thing with Clara. Love at first sight <laughs> doesn't exist. And what people think is love at first sight is is a hormonal problem that, that, old, Doc, <laughs> that old Doc Brown is just simply not going to have. Okay, wow. Uh, we will not be reviewing any romantic comedies anytime with DJ involved. <laughs> I don't mind. Like, there's some romantic comedies that I think are, are fine. Um, uh, one of my favorites, though, uh, it completely proves my point, which is um, While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. Um, and and she, she does this whole love at first sight thing, but it turns out the guy she really should be with is not the guy that she thought she fell in love with at first sight. Uh I, that's the type of thing that I like. That that seems much more re- realistic to me. Um, the, the yeah, I, I thought the whole Clara Clayton uh, Doc Brown thing was just completely stupid. 
And that was one of the things that really did it in for me. Hmm. Well, see, I know that's a funny, another funny thing. I guess this has more to do with our personality differences because uh, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for um, romance that seems to be led by the leading, uh, you know, guy. And most all, you know, romance, they're led by the women these days. Their romantic comedies are essentially chick flicks. That's the mainstream thing. And it seems like since the 80s, there's been fewer and fewer romances where the leading men had a lot to do with steering the course of the relationship. And it's not, I'm not saying that women should take a back seat. I'm just saying that, come on, how, why is it that when it comes to love relationships, the women are the only one doing anything to further the relationship. And here we have doc Brown who is pursuing Clara. And then Clara has to ultimately pursue him after he first pursued her. And I thought that was kind of clever considering that doc Brown is again, it might seem uncharacteristic of him, but given his extraordinary situation that he has been put into where He's experienced a lot more than most people ever get to experience different times and different places. And he's seen so many different things that something in about his person has grown so, so astronomically, it's hard to describe. And here he can identify, Hey, here, here is the one person I have met in my entire life from three separate centuries that I could actually live with All and right. love for the rest of my life. Joe. I thought that was clever. All right, Joe, we get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, I thought it deserves you, you love, to be You love the, the love story here. You, you like the love story. Yeah, I, I kind of do. Okay. I, I think it, I think it doesn't work as well as, you know, George McFly's and Lorraine's, but it, <laughs> it, it works for the, this film's narrative. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, I'll I'll let you have it. I, I don't like it. You like it. That's fine. That's a matter of taste. The, and and you know this film was not completely devoid of fun. Uh, or devoid of of, of fun things uh, that I liked, such as I I really loved the spin on what has kind of become the classic, uh, Back to the Future humor, where you know before the lines were, uh, Doc would say Great Scott, and you know Marty would say Whoa, that's heavy. And and uh, and now in this film, you know, you got. Uh, <laughs> You're right. <laughs> there was this one line, the part where where um, Marty's looking at I can't remember what it is he's looking at, but something that concerns him. He says, "Great Scott," you know, and and Doc goes, "I know it's heavy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, they've gotten used to each other. I, I really loved the whole uh, stove uh, front, um, the, the the stove lid thing under the shirt. Uh, I mean, you know, and and, and you, do you realize they set that up in the previous film? Yes. Yeah. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he's watching something on Biff's TV with that thing. Uh, it's a Clint Eastwood uh, film, and uh, yeah, that was great. I love that. So that was see that, that is why good. you should enjoy westerns. Uh, you know, I think it's great when played as humor, but they try to play it straight in westerns, and that that doesn't work well. <laughs> You're right. You are right. <laughs> and Clint Eastwood films are <laughs> just uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I th- I thought that was great. Uh, what else? Oh, I, I love the, you know, it's completely ludicrous. Like, who drinks a shot of liquor and then, you know, passes out straight away? I mean, but I, it worked for Doc because he's such a weird person anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was that was pretty good. Um, Yeah, and I liked bringing the, uh, the, the you know, because Marty has a problem with being called chicken or yellow, and I liked them bringing that around full circle where he's kind of learned and grown from that. So, yeah, there was some, there was some redeeming things about this film. Well, on that note, um, that's actually one of the things I thought that was weaker about the plot 
And it was uh, it was important that Marty have a significant uh, character arc, I think, and uh, Doc's being, you know, his love relationship, to, you know, blossoming. I guess that was his thing. And I understand that they weren't going to develop something with uh, his girlfriend, Marty's girlfriend, so that, that wasn't available. So they had to do something. Well, they kind of did. Uh, not in part three. No, I mean, know? at the end of part three, I mean, it's obvious they're moving on with their relationship. Yeah, but I'm saying that it didn't have something to do with his arc. I see. Yeah, okay, sure. I see yeah, so so the whole thing about being yellow and all that, that worked uh, out well for how it sticks to parts one and two. But it just wasn't as interesting when it came to part three as it was in parts one and two, it seemed to me. Uh, it, it did the job. It just seemed like by that time, by the time he's actually figuring out how he wants to deal with his issues when threatened by bullies, that... He was kind of. It seems like the filmmaking is going through the motions to just get you through that particular plot point. Yeah. Um. So, so when you re- revisit the movie, you realize, yes, the first time through that that was actually something very important to the the story development, and so you're you're on the edge of your seat wondering what is Marty going to do. But when you watch it over and over again, you don't. You're not as concerned with Marty. Cons- you know, thinking that people will get the wrong impression about him if they call him yellow. You know. Yeah. You're you're more interested in what are the guys doing in the background with a clock tower? What is that doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just because the you know the fan in you is curious about looking at other things in the shot. And uh you realize at that point something about the story here isn't as interesting as it, as it should be to uh keep your attention. Yeah. So. And and they did I think again stupid casting choices like as uh Chad pointed out and as I was going to mention too at some point. Um uh, uh, casting Leah Thompson as uh, Marty's great great uh, great grandmother, or however many greats there are in there, this yeah. is this is crazy. Like, why would she look like Lorraine? Why? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you can kind of justify casting. Uh, yeah, because um, she's supposed to be on the McFly exactly, part of the family, and not the so. yeah, not the Bane <laughs> side. So yeah, you can kind of justify casting uh, Michael J. Fox again as a relative, and they made him look sufficiently different. I think that it worked okay, but but casting uh, Leah Thompson as as uh, uh, now that would have been a great opportunity weird. though to have had Crispin Glover back to play the great great great. I agree, but yeah. you know whatever, man. Um, it, yeah, it's just too bad about about Crispin Glover because he was he was good. He was he was he was an essential part of Back to the Future. So, hey, we we've been talking for over an hour and a half. This is I think I'm pretty sure this is our longest podcast to date. And I knew it was going to go long because we're talking about three Back to the Future films. But uh, we should move toward the close. Um, what what do you rate this film? Back to the Future Part Three. Uh, yeah, I give it three and a half. I give okay. three and a half. I, I, I enjoy it. I, I am going to be quite brutal. You and Chad are going to hate me for all of eternity for this. Uh, I give it two and a half stars. <laughs> two and a half. DJ, wow. Sorry. Okay. I, I just, yeah, I I feel the same way about this film that you feel about the previous, which I feel that the negatives and the positives kind of cancel each other out for this film. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. But, you know, <laughs> You need to warm up to some westerns. I need to give you a list. Yeah, I'll get you hooked. I'm, on some I'm pretty good sure ones. you're not going to have any success with that. Have you ever seen the man who shot Liberty Val- Valance? Nope. Ah, okay. Well, you've seen True Grit, right? No, I want to though. I do want to see that one. 
So see, wait a minute. You can't make an exception. You're not allowed to like one Western as an exception. I'm allowed to make exceptions, and that one looked like it might be interesting. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Well, that uh, I think that's going to do us in for this uh, this episode. <laughs> well, we've, we've, okay. we've talked we've talked this ep- we've talked this uh, subject to death, and we might talk about Back to the Future again in the future, or maybe in the past. You never know. Uh, <laughs> So our featured topic for this coming Wednesday, we're going to get back on schedule. We're going to have a show Wednesday. We're going to, uh, uh, assuming Joe doesn't have a relapse or anything, and we're going to be live again at 6.30. So to talk make, about one of our favorite films. Yes, uh, Tron Legacy. And, and I want to talk a little... Both of us little, are, yeah, it's very yeah. high kudos to that film. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the original Tron as well. I'm sure, uh, just to talk about what a travesty that movie was and how in the world did Tron Legacy get made and how did Tron Legacy get so good. <laughs> So, um, yeah, this should be fun. This is part of our, that will be part of our, uh, favorite fun futon f- films for, oh no, I can't remember the, my own, the oh, name no, of my own thing. DJ. The, uh, favorite fun futon films for February. Thank um, you. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yes, that'll be part of that series. That'll wrap up that series probably. Um, there was one other film I wanted to talk about for it, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, so especially with you getting sick. So, um, yeah, be sure to tune in, uh, this coming Wednesday at 6.30 Central, 7.30 Eastern, and, uh, listen live, join us in the chat room as Chad has done today. There was a couple of listeners, but I didn't see him in the chat room, so shame on you guys. Um, so if you want to, uh, follow me on Twitter, you can do so, TJ Draper Pro. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TJ Draper. Uh, and of course you can head out to moviebite.com and check out all the writing I do out there every weekday. Where can people follow you, Joe? I'm available at josephdarnell.com. That'll take you to my Facebook profile, and you can also catch me on Twitter. And that's uh, My handle is at josephdarnell, and my own site, jivingjacklope.com. All right, and uh, be sure to uh, check out the MovieByte Twitter pr- account as well, uh, at MovieByte, or uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash MovieByte is where you'll find all of our social network stuff. Uh, So that's it. That wraps up uh, Back to the Future, parts one, two, and three. We're out of here.